On May 1, 2023, Sotheby's Photographs Department held the first of two auctions dedicated to works from the Pallara Family Foundation collection. The 56-lot auction carried a pre-sale low estimate of just under $6 million, but spirited bidding carried the total sale earnings to over $10 million once the evening was over. The auctions were the result of several months of really hard work on behalf of the Sotheby's Photographs team. In this episode of The Expert Eye, I talked to my colleague Emily Bierman about what it was like to put the auctions together from start to finish. And while we can't go into all of our secrets, we do go into some detail on everything from sales strategy to coming up with a lot order to hanging the exhibition. So stay tuned for an insider's view on what it takes to put together a highly successful auction on this episode of The Expert Eye. Starting from a little bit of background here, museum in San Francisco called Pier 24, which was opened in 2010 by Andy and Mary Pallara. It was a world-class exhibition space devoted to photography in an abandoned warehouse on San Francisco's Embarcadero. And it was designed to exhibit the Family Foundation's expanding collection through a rotating program of curated exhibitions and became a vital destination for the global photography and fine art communities valued for its commitment to elevating artists' voices from emerging to established dynamic exhibition installations. So Andy and Mary Pallara decided to transition their foundation into a grant-making foundation that would benefit healthcare research, education, and the arts. And therefore, they needed to disperse a large amount of photographs from the foundation thoughtfully, and we stepped in to help them with that endeavor. So. We put together two auctions, a evening sale on May 1st and a day sale on May 2nd, the following day. The pre-sale estimates for both sales were close to $6 million to close to $9 million. 5.8 to 8.8. Thank you for that clarification. No problem. And the sale total for both ended up far exceeding the pre-sale estimate. Yeah, well in excess of 10.6 million. And what I think was even just as interesting was the sell-through rate for both sales because it was exceptional. Um, The combined sell-through rate for both sales was 97%. It might as well be 100% because what that breaks down to is in the evening sale, 53 of the 55 lots selling and in the day sale 124 of 128 lots selling that is like when we think about what we could possibly hope for and want for any sale let alone for a collection of this importance scale scope um, magnitude this is just about um, the best that you could possibly ever dream of. Uh, and at nearly 100% sold, and in my mind, we're just going to call it 100%, um, it is one of the highest sell-through rates for any single owner sale of photographs at any auction house. Yeah, it's, it was really stunning and a very exciting evening and day, um, a nice uh, Lots of people participating on the phones, good turnout in person, lots of depth with the internet bidding. 
Mm -hmm. It was like a very spirited auction, lots and lots of participation. Yeah, from beginning to end, from the very first slot through to on the, the evening sale at six o'clock um, Eastern time through to <laughs> at the end of what actually ended up being a long day sale. Um, we did it as one session uh, because it's fewer than 150 lots and seemed fine. Uh, but we had so much competition throughout that instead of the average 60 lots an hour, um, we started at 10. And I think we ended close to or after, was it after one? Yeah, definitely after um, one. Definitely yeah. after one. So, uh, I mean, people, people came from all over the world. Uh, I think more than 20 bidders in more than 20 countries participating. And as you said, just like spirited in every way. So uh, with the live sale platform and having just the best auctioneers, because we are partial, but Sotheby's does have the best auctioneers. Um, we had three terrific auctioneers who engaged. However, however you were watching and wanting to participate in the sale, they made sure that you felt like you were part of it being there in the room, um, even if you were far. So great phone bidding, great room bidding, um, and certainly that the wild card of never mm -hmm. knowing exactly what the internet's going to do, mm -hmm. um, and then them clicking their button. Yeah, right. It's always a little bit difficult to predict that internet um, participation, but I feel like coming out of the exhibition, we had a little bit more of a sense than we usually do, mainly because, I mean, to me, there were so many people that came in for exhibition and I had conversations mm -hmm. with them about how they were going to participate. But participating um, by bidding on very high value things online, yeah. which is always a little bit surprising to me. I mean, you know, that's it's a lot of confidence um, in, Bidding on no. a $250,000 photograph online is something that a lot of people might have anxiety about, but. I think, uh, I mean, this is, this is a conversation we have all the time, but people are so used to transacting throughout their daily lives online, mm -hmm. that the idea of bidding and buying and participating in an auction online at any level I think it's become just totally second nature. And right. there is, this is definitely not the question you asked or the direction that I think you wanted to go in, but there's <laughs> a psychology uh, to, to bidding and there always has been. Um, and there are plenty of collectors and bidders who don't want to show their hand, who want to keep the house on their toes. And what better way to do that now than to wait in the wings at your computer, wherever you are, and just be ready to click the button. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, I do agree that it takes a certain amount of confidence, uh, but it is buying, buying online at this point is, it's not even a question. Yeah. So I, I mean... I think it's just a shift uh, for us sometimes to see it, especially when we think about um, how we are doing our auctions. But I think that the world is so accustomed to it. And we've also tr basically like trained our clients, trained collectors, given that the vast majority of auctions do occur with online only bidding. 
and you just become very used to it. So why, why change? Um, yeah. Why transition back to a different way of doing it? I also had so many conversations with a lot of those internet buyers before the sale. So I knew that they had all the information that they needed yeah. to, in order to buy confidently online, even if they were bidding from overseas or from Connecticut, wherever they might be. Um, so I think that it might be really interesting to people to talk about how we put the sale together. So when we um, first go in and start looking at a collection that has thousands of photographs, um, how do we think about a sale strategy? How do we think about when we would want to have a sale and what the sale makeup will be? And how do we propose those things to a consigner, um, mm -hmm. it's, there's just so many variables. And yeah. we went through a lot of different ideas before settling on, you know, what our final strategy would be. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about the planning stages. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, in every instance, but certainly in this case, it's really, it was really important to keep in mind what the end goal was, um, how, First of all, how the collection was formed, what was important uh, to the collectors, and then certainly because this was a foundation that was sharing its collection with the world already through a museum platform, uh, and then what was the purpose of the sale. So the collection had been formed over the past two decades or so uh, with a real focus on sort of not only just best of the best, but great depth in certain artists. So being able to chart the history of a photographer's career within a within the collection, um, a very American collection, great stories of documentary photography, the changing, evolving landscape and urban scape, um, advent and command of really color photography with those great works by Stephen Shore, vernacular, which um, we're so nerdy and passionate about as well. Um, looking at how the collection had been formed, what was important in selecting the photographs to the Polaris, and then how they had used those photographs at Pier 24 Photography, the exhibition space, um, which has what, 28,000 square feet has had these amazing exhibitions that have drawn people in from all over the, all over the world, um, always open, free of charge to the public by appointment with a real emphasis on education and opportunity for contemplation, quiet contemplation with the photographs. Emphasis on publishing, right? So great exhibition catalogs that, um, we have this beautiful full set of them and we think about what we want to do when we're doing a catalog and it's like a gold standard. The design is gorgeous, the information is super clean and to, to the point. Um, so taking all of that together and then thinking the Pier 24 photography as a destination would be closing, but the legacy of it, of education, of a commitment to sharing the collection with the public, of publishing, um, and then the foundation's commitment to using all of the funds, 
So having taken the photographs and had them available to the public uh, to enjoy and to learn from, and now taking the funds that would be raised from selling those photographs to use um, entirely for like great causes. I mean, what could be better than healthcare research, education, um, again, also supporting the arts, um, paying tribute to the legacy of the past while also helping to best promote and position the photographs to see the best financial outcome for the foundation. And then also the legacy of those artists, making sure that you are, especially with a collection that does have depth, making sure that you are properly positioning those artists, not necessarily having too many uh, works by a given artist available at, a, at, at one time. So many different things to think about. So when we were thinking through how best to look at a collection that spans, spans um, thousands of photographs, more than 4,000 photographs, uh, it is, I mean, it was a little overwhelming at first, right? So you're oh my thinking God, about like, so much. just like a long yeah. list of names and, and images. And many of these are photographs that you think to yourself, boy, if I only I had the chance. Um, and here we are with the chance, but we have to make it the right chance. Uh, <laughs> so um, curating down uh, to a really tight grouping. Um, I'm not... Uh, I think we, we often say the sale is tightly curated. Um, sure, it is tightly curated. Uh, but what we are, what we're doing more than anything is crafting. I think it's more crafting than, than, than hmm. curating. Like we curate an exhibition, but we really craft a sale plan. Um, and That's we really- an interesting distinction. I hadn't, well, I hadn't really thought about that. Don't worry, it just came to me on the but... spot. <laughs> and just <laughs> crafting, involve I think it does because I saw you do this cutting all of these slips into tiny little pieces oh, yeah. and sitting on the floor with them surrounding you and then putting it's them all in, in order and like trying to make sense of it all because there were so many works to um pick from An embarrassment of riches and like right. you said a lot of depth within certain artists um, so choosing carefully which works we were going to include and for what reason um, was really challenging. Yeah, it is a, I mean, it's an astonishing collection in terms of what is represented, both of the iconic works. So those great Dorothea Lange photographs, um, of course, the migrant mother, um, the Richard Avedon the, in the American West images, great Robert Frank photographs, including the Charleston from um, the Americans, but also lesser known surprises, um, the Japanese photography, which has really had an exploding market um, from our perspective over the last couple of years, but are a little bit more of an outlier. Um, the Wright Morris, right? I mean, that is not necessarily something that we would have, that you can catch on to when you're just looking at a list. Mm -hmm. um, but we take a look at a list, we think about holistically what the goal, uh, how the collection was put together, what the goal of um, the sale should be, what it should feel like. And I think it was really important to us when we were thinking about this and really throughout the process to pay tribute to the amazing work that 
Gear 24 photography has been doing since 2010 and to the integrity of the collection. So really in whatever photographs we were selecting for sale and making sure that it was a tight grouping, um, giving a full sort of sense of the flavor of the collecting philosophy. And then in our presentation, um, again, uh, doing our best to pay tribute to how, what was important um, mm -hmm. to, to them. In terms of timing, uh, we are off, I mean, we're often thinking about what is the, what's the right moment. Um, and there are any number of iterations of sale plans we could have come up with. Uh, and anyone can debate what is the best direction. Uh, but we felt strongly, and, and I think it, it was, ended up being very much true, um, that a collection of this significance uh, by both value and volume deserves to be celebrated on its own and really needs to be championed and celebrated on its own outside of the seasonal, traditional seasonal timing. So photographs in New York seasonally in the beginning of April, um, in the beginning of October. And we've had really great, um, great outcomes, great results when we've done off season sales. Um, and being able to focus people's attention just on this monumental market moment and really make sure that all of the attention was on year 24, make sure all of the attention was on the foundation's photographs. Um, so the beginning of May ended up being uh, sort of this bridge of timing, right? Um, not adjacent um, and not uh, up against the traditional photograph season, um, not up against the traditional contemporary season, which is about to start in the next couple of weeks, really kind of the sweet spot where we could tell the story, have all the opportunity, make sure that this was the event, um, that there were really no distractions. Uh, and it, it was great. Um, mm -hmm. The building, uh, the opportunities within, um, just in terms of exhibition, were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, I know you're going to talk about that, but like, oh, the exhibition, I will, I will remember it forever. I mean, it was <laughs> the most insane to do and the most beautiful exhibition that I think we will ever do. It was astonishing. Yeah, and I think you briefly mentioned, I mean, there's the, the, timing with contemporary or we're right in between all these other things there is always a lot going on in this building there are there's a lot of exhibition space but it's almost always engaged in some way whether it's mm -hmm. getting ready for an exhibition or things coming down or being used for um, a lecture or an exhibition of of some kind so fitting it in too um just perfectly where we could use these beautiful big galleries mm -hmm. um, and the timing ended up being just right on. I mean, and it's not was... only that there's a lot that happens here because there is a lot that happens here, but there's a lot that happens in the global art market, right? So it's finding a moment 
that isn't at, that there isn't an art fair that's yeah, right, people. Right. Um, also timing it with potentially like what's happening in museums. Um, mm-hmm. The great show at the Met um, of the Avedon murals, which opened um, a couple months ago and has been getting really great press. Like that's a draw here in New York. The collection has great Avedons. How can you position it? How can you position the sale to take advantage of that? So right. making sure that we're thinking outside of the confines of just what's happening at Sotheby's here in New York, what's happening in our company globally, certainly, but also what's just happening in the art world. Right. There are two major components to a pre-sale, um, to pre-sale elements. And one of those is catalog and the other one is exhibition. And those mm-hmm. are both really important ways to sell an exhibition or sell a, a collection. So mm-hmm. maybe you can talk about the catalog in the sense that we put these things, put every lot in order according to a strategy about mm-hmm. not not only how they look in a catalog, how this presents, but also the cadence of what it will take during an auction itself. So how do you figure out what goes in what order? Oh, that is so fun. Um, <laughs> just, just like you, you do, said, really love it. You love I do. that part. I do. Um, I do really like it. But just like you said, how I like to, I'm very uh, hands-on and like to like chop up little pieces of paper and make some art, art projects. Art project. <laughs> uh, it is somewhat similar in lot ordering, um, especially if you're looking at the an evening sale, which is a small grouping as opposed to a much larger sale. So visually, definitely uh, that plays into it. How does it look? Um, how does it flow? But most important, I think, is what is going to set the tone for the sale? What is going to kick off with a bang? And how are you going to then continue that? So making sure that you have, uh, as you said, I think a a cadence to the lotting so that all of your high value isn't clumped together Mm -hmm. um, and that you are giving people room to breathe. And then also thinking if someone, if you, if someone's going to be disappointed that they didn't get this lot, making sure that they are able to compete for the next lot. Um, So thinking through which is going to be the most popular, what do you think is going to be the most popular? Because undoubtedly, we end up finding out that much of the time we're right, but sometimes there are surprises and Mm -hmm. that there's something that we really didn't think people were going to go crazy for, and then all of a sudden they do. But for this sale, um, it was from almost the very, like we talked about what's going to be lot one for quite some time. And I, I personally was like, oh, it's too soon. I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but I think we knew really early on that lot one was going to be Robert Adams, mm-hmm. for sure, because the Robert Adams photographs in this collection were just insane. Uh, and then it was which one. And Pike's Peak just ultimately felt like the gut must do. Um, it's the image that was on the cover of Sarah Greeno's most recent uh, exhibition catalog for Robert Adams, um, obviously blown up in a bigger scale. And it is, oh God, it's such a glowy, mm-hmm. um, gorgeous photograph. Uh, and it had never been at auction before. 
um, we knew we were going in pretty hard with uh, the number of atoms that we were offering and why not put what has become synonymous for the artist over the last couple of years, why not make that the punchiest lot one? It had a super attractive estimate and just make that um, out the gate, uh, hopefully a great success. And it worked um, mm -hmm. because it was a great lot one and people went crazy for it. It's um, true. I think we set the record several times on several photographs. Colorado Springs as an individual photograph now has a, the record. And then, of course, the world record for Adams uh, achieved for the group of photographs from Eden. Um, and then those were all in the evening sale. And then we had fantastic results for Robert Adams in the day sale, including for some images that no one had ever seen before, mm -hmm. some lesser known works, which always, I think, raises an antenna of like, well, what's going to happen? Um, right. We we felt so strongly that the interest in Adams had been really developing over these. I mean, it has been strong forever, um, mm -hmm. but over the last couple of years, it's been great. And then just the convergence of great retrospective, great collection coming to market, once in a lifetime opportunity. It really um, yeah, it, it panned out and it was it was right to lean in. But I mean, it's more than just the lotting, right? It's more than just figuring out what you're going to sell, how you're going to estimate it. I mean, estimating is a huge part of what we do. And right. you and I talked about in our last recap, the right. estimate smackdowns, <laughs> um, which remain my favorite. Uh, the disagreements that you have and then figuring out how to get to a common place and who was right in the end. Right. Won't go um, there. Um, but we do so much research and writing and this, this uh, project in particular, I think really because we, we knew and we had the Pier 24 photography um, exhibition catalogs as reference and knew how central catalogs and publishing had been and continues to be to their mission and education um, at the heart of it. Wanted to make sure that we were doing our absolute best to honor that and right. to make this to make this auction catalog um, as as scholarly as could possibly be to be in to be in line with that um, right. and to be a part of that um, as that history. So every lot in the evening cell had had an essay. Which um, Amy, I can see your face right now. You you are <laughs> looking at me, and uh, I know that was a lot of work. But aren't you glad we did it? <laughs> it nearly killed me. Um, people loved it. I know. I think. It's a really, um, it's a beautiful catalog. I'm just back patting here. Like we did a really good job, but the writing and the research is one of the most fun things because, okay, for one thing, it's one of the most hard things to encapsulate yeah. a artist's career, their auction history with that particular piece, the relevance of the subject, all of those things into a well-baked essay that isn't too hard um, to digest so that people will just be like, okay, I, that's boring. I'm not going to read it. But um, 
is just really hard, <laughs> but super fun because you learn so much. What um, did you, what's, what's a lot that you knew nothing about and yeah. now you feel like you are an armchair expert? Well, that is a really, really good question. Um, I think that I can't answer it. I don't know. You don't think um, it's a Deborah Lester? That's true. That is an artist that I I did not know really anything about Deborah Lester before we started working on this sale. And we included that piece in this auction um, because it was so representative of the auction, uh, the collection as a whole. Mm-hmm. And is such a um, meaningful project and really speaks to the collection's um, focus on humanity. And yeah. so when I started reading about it, it was like, okay, well, this is all new. This is really fascinating. And so just a little bit of background. It's called One Big Self, Prisoners of Louisiana. It's um, these little aluminum plates that have gelatin silver prints on them so they're almost designed to look like tin types um and they all fit within a large steel cabinet that looks kind of like a a warden's desk from a prison mm-hmm. all of the images are of prisoners in the louisiana um corrections system um and on the back they each have etched information about who they are, uh, when they get out, if they have children, what their work detail is. And they are just amazing records, um, collaborative projects really between the sitters and the photographer. And I'm really proud that we included that because she had never been shown at auction before. The pre-sale estimate was thirty to $50,000 and it ended up hammering for 80000 and so it really went with BP. Um, that was 101, a little That's over 101,000. And yeah. it engaged a lot of people. We ended up having some pretty good bidding on that. Yeah. Um, which I think is fantastic. So, yeah, absolutely. Proud of that result. See, that's something that uh, you might not have been able to dive into if not for a project like this. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, another large project before the auction is the exhibition and Mm -hmm. planning what the exhibition is going to look like, how we fill the space to um, make it look the best that it can. And one of the major problems or um, I should say challenges, opportunities is that there were so many groups, um, large groups of things that needed to be hung. Um, For instance, just in um, Friedlander's little screens Mm -hmm. were 52 prints, um, 85 prints in uh, Women Are Beautiful by Gary Winogrand, 48 prints in Nicholas Nixon's The Brown Sisters, 69 prints in Richard Avedon's The Family. That's just a few of the major groups that we had. You forgot the Hans Peter Feldman. uh, Of 101 photographs that yeah. all had to have a home so well that was challenging all have to have a home that's the thing like we could have done this exhibition in a totally different way but because all of these photographs well with the exception of the Hans Peter Feldman which really did need to hang all 101 of them um 
but the we could have done little selections, um, which would have been much more normal. But because they were all framed and because they had been exhibited at Pier 24 in specific configurations, um, or even if not in specific configurations, like there had been full rooms and walls devoted to showing this full body mm -hmm. of work. We really wanted, if possible, to honor that and like have a little bit of the Pier 24 from the Embarcadero at Sotheby's mm -hmm. on York Avenue. Um, so yes, it was complicated to install hundreds of photographs and to do it like a little jigsaw. Um, but I think that's part of what made it, um, A, so much fun to work on, um, a, such a memorable exhibition for anyone who came and saw it. Um, and see, like, even for our friends in operations who were tasked with <laughs> hammer and nail, um, putting all this together, like, it was cool. Like, it was, was an really unusual cool. project for them. And I think I told you, our registrar came up to me before um, we started installing. She said, Amy, I just want, want you to know, I requested all the best hangers that we have. So she named off all of Yay. the best and she said, these guys are going to get it done for you. And I said, that's good because we don't have much time. We have very limited time to get this up on the wall and we don't have time to do a lot of rehanging. So we have to be very confident with where we're putting things and how we're hanging them. And they knocked it out of the park. They sure did. I mean, we do a, unlike, so museums, Auction houses, galleries, all they all have their own way of planning for an exhibition. Some people use a computer program that looks like you're in an avatar land. Some people use like the old school building a model and putting like little two scale paintings <laughs> on those dollhouse walls. Um, we do spec it out pretty close to scale before we get um, any of the photographs to the floor. But then you get the photographs out there on the floor, property to floor. And undoubtedly, like it just, sometimes it works and sometimes right. it doesn't work. But as you said, like we work on um, a tight timeline and install is very fast. And then the most amazing thing to me is like the deinstall mm -hmm. because it's weeks and weeks and weeks or months and months and months of work. You get it up on the wall, everyone's come through. They think it's the most amazing thing that's ever happened. And then like overnight, it is white walls. It's gone, yeah. You, you were never there. Well, the, the handlers were waiting behind the scenes until 5.01 on, on Sunday to start taking this exhibition down. I mean, it closed at five and they were all lined up. Ready they were ready and we were ready for them. And it was sad to say goodbye to the exhibition for sure. Oh, well, yeah, they've we only been up lots for four of days. Images, <laughs> lots of images. Um, I took video of it and uh, it will it will live on in, in all of our collective minds. Um, but I then we get to the sale, right? So that's what we're all leading up to anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just after all of that work, you would like to see it just hang for months and months, um, especially oh, okay. when you start to really fall in love with the photographs and it's sad to see them go after, you know, getting to work on them. Um, there were definitely, I had definite favorites 
um, in the sale. I am very happy to see them go to new homes. <laughs> yeah, I well, okay. am very, very happy to be the middleman. I do not need to keep them. Um, all the babies go out there into the world, and yep. that's the best possible yep. thing. So, day of sale, I think it would be very interesting to hear what your day of sale looks like. Oof. What are you uh, well, typically working on? So the sale was, the evening sale started at 6 p.m. So mm -hmm. what what does that typically look like for you? Wake up. Um, mm -hmm. What'd you have for breakfast? Bed. I didn't have breakfast because uh -huh. my stomach was in nuts. Um, <laughs> it's a day of high energy and anxiety. So you are getting all uh, firming up and making sure that you have everything ready. So all of your Clients are registered. Um, no one needs any more help. So you've got your phones organized. You make sure that everyone who thinks that they're going to be bidding online has their accounts made, paddles registered, working with your consigner, making sure that they have everything that they need, um, fielding an unusual amount of last-minute inquiries. I mean, probably not an unusual amount. Um, it just always feels like you've known about this for a while now. <laughs> you have to ask me two hours before the sale. Um, but it keeps us on our toes and keeps us going, meeting with um, our colleagues in the bids team to make sure that they have everything ready, talking to our auctioneer, making sure that um, the auctioneer doesn't have any questions, um, including how to pronounce right. different <laughs> artist names, uh, which is always my favorite. So like both, mm -hmm. um, coming up with little hints um, and tricks for people. And then, well, this is not even remotely part of the average sale process, but I'm just going to mention it because it was literally the highlight of probably my entire 16, 17 years here at Sotheby's <laughs> was the opportunity to go into the jewelry department with our friend, um, Frank Everett, who said, you know what, you should, for an evening sale, you should model some of our, um, be good advertising for our upcoming uh, fine jewel sale. And we were lent um, two pieces. I got to wear a diamond necklace. Amy, you got to wear very fancy diamond what earrings. What was the estimate on the necklace that you were wearing? It was 80000 to 120000 Well, it was a beautiful necklace. So nice. Um, boy, did it feel, did it feel special. And it really did set for me, like, mentally. As soon as I put on those diamonds, it really made me <laughs> feel like this is really happening. Um, and then, of course, um, I turned back into a mere mortal after the sale when we gave them back to... Oh, that was dirty. Awesome. Uh, but you know what? We had the best sale results. So special fancy diamonds, um, but there's <laughs> nothing that could take away from the feeling of having seen the all that hard work really pay off and seeing not only just really monumental, terrific results for these for the artists. Um, alive and dead for these important photographs, um, but for the Blair Family Foundation. So yeah. I think for you and for me, like key to it was knowing, I won't speak for you actually, but key to it for me was knowing that all this work is not going to go unnoticed. It's not for nothing. All of this money that's being raised is going to really like to yeah. help 
um, to help people. And that made it even more meaningful in the end when we smashed all of our pre-sale expectations and records. Speaking of which, we made some really, really exciting records during that sale. And I just want to mention a few of them because they're just so great. One is Dorothea Lang for Migrant Mother. Um, this particular print was just beautiful. It was a very large print, the largest that we had really ever seen come up for sale or had seen, The period. largest early print, certainly. Um, and yes, the largest that had ever come up for sale at almost 24 by 20 inches. Pre-sale estimate was $200,000 to $300,000. And we made a new world record for that image um, at $609,600. Mm-hmm. Smashing the previous record of $389,000. Yeah. Um, we made a new world record for Richard Avedon um, he, for his series In the American West. We sold two works. Um, well, we sold more than two works by the in the American West series, but two of them tied for records from that series. One, my favorite photograph, Juan Patricio Lobato, the carnival worker, and the other one was Clarence Lepard, the um, drifter. the drifter. Both of those sold for four hundred and forty four thousand five hundred dollars. Incredible. Um, really and amazing. then. I will just mention uh, the top lot of the sale, which was a new world record for Robert Frank. And that was for Charleston, an oversized print of that image. And we um, set that record for $952,500, the highest price paid for a print by that photographer. Um, the previous record had been back in 2013 for an image of a uh, trolley. Mm -hmm. uh, for 663. So that was really exciting. I mean, almost, let's just say it's almost a million dollars. It's almost that a million. That has a nice ring to it. Okay. It's almost a million. Um, and I mean, we made almost, well, we made over 10 uh, uh, records overall. Mm -hmm. Larry Clark, Robert Adams, as we mentioned before, David Goldblatt, Deborah Lester, which we mentioned, uh, Shomai Tomatsu, Joseph Kudalka, Eric Demon, and, uh, oh, right, Morris and Bruce Davidson. But there's so much more to come, Amy. Okay, so what's next? Well, we're going to take a short little break, meaning <laughs> a day, um, to enjoy. We started talking about the next sales right away. We didn't even take a day. We're, we may not be actively working on it today, but we talked about the schedule for the fall. So. That's true. We did talk about the schedule today. Um, we're going to take a short rest, um, but not too long because we have a lot to do. Um, and we have a, this is just the kickoff, um, and the sale series continues with a, another totally different body of work um, this fall, a day sale, as well as a couple of online online only sales um, and everything has its own uh, or will have um, its own sort of thematic quality to it. Mm -hmm. So its own um, 
in a different approach. Uh, and we have our work cut out for us, but it's, it's good work um, because it's been such a, an absolute pleasure and privilege and honor, um, all, the, all the nice words that you can think of um, to work on this collection. And I can say for myself, um, having visited Pier 24 Photography over the years, I never could have dreamed um, up the opportunity to do this. And here we are. Um, so dreams do come true, even if you didn't know you could have them. <laughs> it has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed working on this. And More a pleasure me. speaking with you, Emily, um, and working on the next few sales. They're very talented, intelligent, hardworking team. Um, working team in show business. Yep. So stay tuned for more of the Pilar Family Foundation in October. This episode was recorded on May 4th, 2023 in New York and was edited by Yvonne Suro in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. I'll place links on theexperteye.org of sale highlights and images from the installation. And make sure to stay tuned for a second group of sales this fall at Sotheby's. Until next time, Google cautiously, blacklight judiciously, and do not handle prints under the influence of intoxicants.